Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Hello, everybody. Uh, good evening. Uh, and I'm uh, talking to you today from uh, Beijing, China. And my guest and someone very important that I wanted to have this conversation with, Craig Allen, the president of the U.S.-China uh, Business Council. Uh, where are you today, Craig? Thank you, Emmanuel. I am in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, so uh, let's start with uh, the, uh, the, the trade numbers. I think that the trade department's latest uh, trade figures show that uh, in the last year alone, 2022, trade between China and the U.S. Uh, increased, uh, you know, despite uh, all of the, you know, tariffs in place on both sides. Um, where do you think that was coming from? So um, the numbers don't lie, and the numbers uh, suggest an increase in U.S.-China trade uh, for the third consecutive year to a record uh, this year. And this trade is uh, very large. About uh, if today is an average day, then uh, approximately $2 billion will cross uh, the Pacific Ocean between uh, China uh, and the United States. Um, you, Chinese exports uh, to the US were up um, in 2022 about 6.4%, um, uh, reaching a record. And that's despite uh, all of the tariffs that President Trump uh, put in place, which still remain, of course. U.S. exports uh, to China were also up uh, about 2%. Um, and, uh, but that's quite remarkable given what a, a difficult year uh, in uh, China uh, and in the markets. I would say that while the numbers uh, look good on the surface, so there's trouble uh, brewing under those numbers. I'd say that, uh, for example, U.S. exports to China uh, were inflated uh, by very high commodity prices. Uh, we had record uh, agricultural exports um, uh, by terms of in terms of value, but not necessarily, but in terms of volume. Uh, also, energy prices were high, uh, particularly in the beginning part of the year, and uh, a great great deal of American coal, uh, natural gas, and, and oil uh, was shipped uh, to China. So uh, while the numbers have, uh, U.S. exports have increased as much as 40% over the last three years, um, I would not be sanguine about that, that and I would not be uh, comfortable to say that in 2023, we're going to see continued increases in in our trade. I think it depends on the policies taken by the two governments. Thank you for that, because that put in perspective uh, what the numbers represent for now. Uh, what are the most pressing uh, topics uh, that you're handling, handling right now? So uh, I think that uh, traditionally our focus has been on creating a level playing field uh, in China. Um, and uh, that remains a, uh, a top focus. What we would like to see uh, is an equal opportunity for foreign firms uh, in the Chinese market. And I think that uh, we fear, uh, we uh, observe uh, that uh, the level field, the playing field is not level. 
And that in particular, state-owned enterprises in China are given many advantages that both the Chinese private sector and foreign companies are not able to take advantage of. Um, so I have cataloged as many as 130 uh, industrial policies uh, used by the Chinese government uh, to preference um, state-owned enterprises uh, and uh, private companies uh, in uh, China. I think that uh, when you uh, look at uh, uh, China, the current um, economic orientation or trade orientation is uh, towards uh, something uh, that the Chinese call dual circulation. And, yep. and that has not been properly defined uh, by anyone, but I suspect that it does not help uh, uh, foreign exporters to the Chinese market uh, and or uh, foreign investors in China. And uh, uh, we saw this uh, reiterated uh, at the party conference um, in October, uh, November, um, and uh, continued emphasis on uh, government and party control within the Chinese economy. And I would posit uh, to our Chinese friends that that is economically inefficient and uh, it will stifle growth. Uh, rather, if you want to grow jobs, if you want to grow uh, technology, if you want to grow uh, China's integration in the world, uh, then working uh, in a more effective manner with China's private companies and multinational companies uh, would uh, get you to that destination. Um, and uh, uh, so China's uh, uh, economic policies are evolving. And we're hopeful that uh, that they'll give us uh, a fair, uh, equal access to the China Chinese market, as uh, we believe uh, we've been promised in the WTO, and China aspires to in RCEP and the CPTPP uh, agreements. Uh, those are all good ideals. Uh, we need to see them manifest uh, in Chinese law uh, and regulation, uh, in Chinese government procurement practices in SOE procurement practices. And I think that we have a ways to go uh, before uh, we can uh, be satisfied that uh, the treatment of uh, foreign companies in the Chinese market um, is uh, what we had agreed to when China joined the WTO. What you're saying is quite interesting because what you're saying is if China, in a way what you're saying is that if China was fair to its own private sector, uh, th then there's a fighting chance that it will also be fair uh, to foreign companies uh, trading in China. Uh, you know, and that's a kind of a perspective that has not been uh, articulated before. Um, now, there's one area uh, that uh, China seems to be opening up, which is uh, capital markets uh, in some yeah. way, uh, which is uh, to encourage uh, foreign, you know, capital market players, uh, fund managers, uh, asset managers, hedge funds, uh, to have licenses to access uh, the the Chinese market, as it were. Where do you think that was that is coming from, and what do you think that that is all about? Let's talk about the capital markets. Um, yes, I would uh, argue uh, that uh, 2022 was a brutal year for the Chinese private sector. And we see that in uh, both uh, profitability of Chinese private companies and uh, fixed capital investment by Chinese private com uh, China companies in China was a about 0.5% in, in 2022. 
uh, it was a terrible year in terms of profits. In the meantime, state-owned enterprises had a great year uh, with profits up and, and investment up. And I think that that's exactly uh, the opposite of uh, what uh, the Chinese government should, should want to see. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, as uh, kind of in tandem with the Chinese private sector, multinational corporations, certainly in Europe, uh, America, the U.S., Canada, and Australia, uh, are, are, are rethinking uh, both their investments and their supply chains uh, in China. And that's just a reality of, of both the economics uh, and uh, the uh, politics uh, 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 of, of China. So vis-a-vis -vis the capital markets, um, I, would, I would agree with you uh, that we have seen um, significant liberalization uh, since the phase one agreement signed by uh, President Trump and uh, Lioha uh, in 2019. Um, right before, uh, right before the COVID uh, uh, epidemic, um, and that's a good thing. Um, I think that the Central Bank of China uh, and others within the current Chinese leadership, which which is of course is about to step down, uh, they recognize uh, that capital allocation is not a strong suit uh, for China's largely. SOE dominated financial sector, and that they recognize uh, very wisely uh, that they need foreign expertise uh, for capital allocation, particularly at the long end, uh, that they recognize that uh, China has a demographics problem, has excess debt, uh, and, and some quite significant financial strains. And they're trying to manage that by allowing in uh, foreign companies to have greater access on 100% ownership uh, in the Chinese financial market. And that's a very wise move. Um, but let's still recall that uh, almost all of the major uh, Chinese financial um, institutions uh, remain state-owned uh, and uh, uh, thus have a dual mandate uh, of uh, making a profit and, and acting like a company, but also uh, with a, uh, uh, a, a requirement uh, to um, address uh, the concerns of the party uh, and of uh, the government. And so this hybrid model that you have in China across the financial industry is going to uh, produce uh, uneven results. Uh, uh, and uh, so putting, putting uh, those foreign uh, asset allocators uh, on top of that, I think is a very wise thing. It will help uh, uh, to improve uh, returns uh, in China over the longer term. It'll help to manage the financial stresses that the Chinese have. China should be more integrated in the global uh, financial world rather than less integrated. And that's an unsteady process here. Of, it's not a linear process, uh, but I think that at least uh, uh, over the last five years, the Chinese have moved uh, boldly in the right direction. You know, you've been engaged uh, with Asia in, uh, broadly and China very specifically for, since the 1980s. Um, and the, the one phenomenon that has not been explained um, sufficiently uh, is the continued 
growth in China at, at rates of 12% or so uh, from the time it joined the WTO well into maybe the next 14 years or so. Let's just touch on what you what do you what do you think you saw uh, in that in those years of uh, amazing growth, uh, which actually is uh, you know it's an inspiration to many other countries as well. But what, what do you think you saw during that period? Sure. Um... Yeah, uh, the growth story over the last 40 years has been nothing short of miraculous. Uh, and it's a, a wonder uh, for all, all people around the earth. And it's brought with China's economic growth has brought with it uh, prosperity uh, for many other countries, uh, uh, particularly resource uh, providers. Um, and I think that if you um, had to choose uh, the how and the why, one uh, could look at the 1.4 billion Chinese people and recognize how hard they work, uh, uh, how smart they are and how innovative they are and that they deserve uh, all the credit uh, for uh, this economic uh, transformation. Now that is in the context, however, of smart, uh, uh, both macro and microeconomic policies. On the ma uh, macroeconomic side, uh, I think that you hit the nail on the head uh, when you noted uh, China's um, joining the WTO. And we could say that more broadly, uh, China's integration in the global economy has been, you know, the greatest economic event of our lifetimes. Uh, and it has benefited uh, and hurt uh, both uh, many, many, many people. It's affected everyone uh, on, uh, on Earth. Um, and so, at least in my view, um, uh, it is that uh, the degree of integration in the global economy is the key determinant uh, here. And the more integrated in uh, the global economy, the better the globe and China will do. And the less integrated in the global economy, the worse China is going uh, to do. And I think that um, the, um, uh, the economic administrators under uh, 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 Jiang Ziming, uh, um, uh, and his successors have been very clear uh, that they wanted a full, fulsome integration in the global economy. To me, that's less clear now. Um, uh, as I look at dual circulation, as I look at uh, the emphasis in the party Congress on, um, on national security, as I look at, um, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, government's unwillingness to approve projects, uh, major projects, uh, uh, that, will, uh, that will lead to uh, investment. Um, as I look at the use of standards and intellectual property rights and government procurement, uh, I get worried uh, that, uh, that the, if you will, the direction of the momentum of regulatory change in China is towards more restrictions not more opening up. And while, um, while uh, within the party Congress, there was the re reinstatement of uh, the requirement for reform and opening, I think what's more important uh, is to look at the, the specific laws and regulations going into place uh, to determine uh, whether or not that's helping or hurting, uh, if you will, uh, fair market competition in China. And what I'm seeing is state-owned enterprises 
uh, doing very, very well, the Chinese private sector doing poorly, and foreign companies wondering uh, whether or not they should continue to invest. Um, and uh, so I do think that we're at a little bit of an inflection point here, uh, where the Chinese uh, government is going to have to make clear uh, whether uh, it's going to continue to integrate into the global economy or uh, that its concerns about national security are so intense that it, uh, that it uh, would prefer not to continue to integrate uh, in the global uh, economy. Um, it's sort of, uh, you could choose uh, control or growth. Uh, you have to set the dial uh, somewhere uh, uh, between full control and, and all out growth. Where will that dial fall? Uh, uh, is a decision of uh, the party and the government and we shall be observing that very closely. Um, for the rest of my lifetime. Give me a sense of the U.S. companies that are successful in China and the U.S. companies that could do better if conditions, the level playing field was, was more in place. I think that uh, when you look at agriculture and energy, as I had noted uh, with the trade figure uh, discussion, they're doing great and everybody's really happy. Um, I think that uh, consumer goods uh, is a really positive uh, sector uh, for American uh, companies and consumer services as well. Uh, we're looking forward uh, to uh, you know, a reopening of the tourism market. Uh, so as a, if you will, a, a consumer service. Um, uh, I think that uh, uh, chemicals and petrochemicals are doing extremely well. Um, we have a lot of investment going in and a lot of Chinese chemicals, um, you know, good, healthy global trade uh, there. I think general manufacturing is doing very well also. Um, and uh, there are many elements there that, that we could talk about, uh, but um, uh, automotive is uh, doing very well, very rapid uh, technological transitions in that industry, of course. But um, there are transitions that we're excited about and uh, that, we, that we need and that we are working quite effectively with uh, Chinese uh, partners and customers and, and suppliers. So we're very, very pleased uh, there. Um, uh, financial services we've discussed before. I think that our companies are very pleased uh, uh, about where we are and that's true across the board uh, almost. Um, I would say that when we get into life sciences, generally uh, we're uh, very bullish on the Chinese market, uh, very happy to be participating. But there are there are signs uh, that uh, that we should worry about this, and that is uh, increasing um, uh, intervention uh, with industrial policy, uh, with uh, subsidies and other types of support. Uh, towards uh, Chinese uh, competitors, uh, uh, government procurement uh, process that does not seem fair uh, to medical equipment suppliers or, or uh, pharmaceutical uh, suppliers. But generally, we think that we could work out those problems. Uh, we want to address them in a straightforward manner uh, and resolve them. Um, then you get to tech, and tech uh, becomes very complicated uh, very quickly. Um, and uh, I would say that uh, we, we see countervailing currents. On the one hand, uh, both governments are looking at semiconductors, semiconductor manufacturing equipment, satellites, aerospace, uh, as uh, national security sensitive. 
Um, but both governments also realize that that they need uh, the other's market and inputs and that, you know, there's uh, a global supply chain uh, in, in this. So both governments are trying to uh, increase self-reliance uh, in these sensitive areas um, and uh, while bolstering uh, their own competitive uh, position. And that's created a, a complex uh, regulatory environment uh, for both uh, American companies doing business in China and I guess we have to say also Chinese companies doing business in America. Um, uh, there's a distrust, a lack of confidence, and indeed protectionist measures being taken by both governments uh, to uh, support their own national champions. And, and that uh, leads to uh, significant distortions in some markets. Um, and um, I think that we would be naive to believe that that's going to go away. Uh, I think that that's uh, uh, a part of uh, a permanent setting. And, and thus it implicates um, American companies' um, uh, activities uh, outside of China, uh, in Europe, Japan, Korea, et cetera, as well as uh, Chinese um, uh, corporate activities uh, out, uh, outside of America in third markets. So both uh, governments are fighting for their uh, companies in uh, various third markets around the world. And that creates uh, also uh, market distortions that are uh, interesting uh, to watch uh, and oftentimes uh, quite wasteful. Actually, uh, you touched on something which I want to explore with you, which is uh, multilateralism and America's commitment to its multilateral obligations. Yes. Um, you've pointed out how the state, um, you know, supports all state-owned enterprises in China to an incredible degree, and I see that too. Um, but uh, in terms of the U.S. reaction, um, what uh, what is your sense of uh, the sentiments that it throws out, the issues that it throws out, uh, the U.S. defensive uh, legislations uh, more recently? I think uh, that um, uh, the Europeans are very upset uh, with Washington and uh, uh, our, our friends in Korea and Japan are none too happy as well. Uh, and uh, they are quite explicit about their concerns about uh, the use of industrial subsidies uh, in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and, and, and in the CHIPS Act. And the fact that uh, those uh, subsidies may be drawing investment out of Europe uh, or Japan or Korea uh, at their expense. Uh, so uh, I think that Brussels uh, uh, feels that this is a, a form uh, of subsidization that would be prohibited uh, under the WTO. And um, so it's not only the Chinese who, who are, are, are unhappy uh, with uh, these, these subsidies. Um, Washington would reply um, by saying, "Well, sue us in the WTO, and and we'll we'll take it. To, we'll we'll meet you in court." Uh, knowing uh, that uh, the that the appellate body within the WTO is not working, and um, leading on to your next question, um, I think that the administration's uh, rebuke uh, of recent WTO decisions has been uh, regrettable. Um, that uh, we need to, uh, all countries, if they take on an international commitment, really should meet the, the, those commitments. And I think that the decisions 
uh, within uh, the WTO uh, uh, concerning the tariffs, for example, or concerning uh, the Hong Kong status uh, um, uh, should be respected. Uh, um, and that um, we um, need to be careful, uh, and indeed all countries need to be careful about overuse of the national security exception because if everything is national security, then nothing is national security. And the global um, the global uh, infrastructure, uh, trade infrastructure is really uh, at risk. Um, and I think that uh, that's where we are uh, right now. Um, can the WTO survive uh, US-China's uh, trade tensions and distrust and, and, and animosity? And, I don't know the answer to that, but I fear that it will be difficult. You know, so now let's take that, can the WTO survive the US, China, any more cities? In fact, both countries have been, you know, sort of meddling into the WTO mechanism. Just as far as trade is concerned, uh, do you subscribe to the idea that maybe the US bargaining position uh, is weaker than China uh, globally? When the US, um, you know, tries to impose its uh, its its perspective of what trade should be and and what relationship should should be. Uh, it's on a weaker footing today than it ever was before. Uh, is it a footing the U.S. can regain, or uh, is there another is there another game plan? How is the U.S. itself evolving as a country uh, that is relevant to the rest of the world? Um, you know, and of course, there's a greater degree of militarism, militarism, you know, and and then there's the Thucydides trap as an as a philosophical underpinning. Um, what is your sense of all this? How do you, as a person who's in the middle, uh, translate uh, the U.S. Uh, bargaining position on the trade front? So, what a wonderful question, a big question, um, and I thank you for that. Um, so if you look at the uh, Trump administration uh, and the transition to the Biden administration, you'll see an incredible amount of continuity uh, on uh, the trade side. Um, and I think that it's fair to say that uh, while uh, Donald Trump was a populist of the right, uh, Joe ba Biden is a populist of the left, uh, but they're both populist um, and uh, they're both uh, reaching out to uh, what is a uh, aggrieved um, uh, middle class and industrial um, uh, and manufacturing uh, a class in the United States, mostly uh, represented very well uh, by our powerful uh, trade unions. Uh, Joe Biden uh, has said that he wishes to be uh, the strongest supporter of trade unions uh, in American history. Uh, and uh, I think that he's uh, doing that and that impacts our trade policy uh, because the unions uh, look at uh, globalization quite differently uh, from the uh, average readers of uh, Asian Banker or, uh, or others. Um, um, so there's a rethink of globalization in general um, is it uh, uh, is it really a good thing? Um, and uh, how do we do a better job at protecting the victims of globalization? And that implicates uh, trade uh, policy. I think that one of the wonderful uh, 
maybe not so wonderful uh, uh, phenomenon of uh, uh, of globalization uh, is that indeed uh, it increases inequality in in uh, every country internally within every country uh, inequality increases and we've certainly seen that in the United States as a result of the deindustrialization particularly of labor uh, sensitive uh, labor intensive industries as they've moved to China or or, or to Mexico or or wherever. And there's a social response uh, to that. And um, I think that uh, uh, demographically, uh, you know, we're um, uh, uh, not growing as as rapidly as as we had been as well. So there's just simply not going to be the global growth uh, that there that there had been in 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 the past. And therefore, um, uh, redivision of uh, the stakes might make. Uh, uh, political uh, political sense. When um, Xi Jinping talks about um, a common prosperity, I think he's trying to address a very similar problem uh, that uh, inequality between rural and urban in China uh, is deep, uh, very structural, and Xi Jinping is uh, committed uh, to addressing uh, that problem in a way that might not always um, best uh, uh, support uh, GDP growth on a global basis. Um, so both uh, governments are grappling uh, with similar problems. Um, and I think uh, uh, no, no one has found really uh, an answer uh, to uh, that, 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 that's going to fit for the, the uh, medium uh, and, or, or longer uh, term. Um, and uh, indeed, as we grapple for these answers to our internal domestic um, uh, tensions uh, that uh, could exacerbate uh, global tensions, uh, trade frictions, investment frictions, and uh, indeed even political uh, frictions. So we need to be very careful about that. TPP was American-led. It worked. Uh, it held the whole region together. It, it uh, brought brought out the, the potential of a diverse set of countries, uh, you know, in in the Pacific rail, uh, rim. Um, and then the U.S. walked out of it. And uh, when RCEP in the first year of RCEP, uh, I think the the figures are showing that ASEAN uh, increased 19% on its trade with China. Um, so, you know the. The, the the narrative the story uh, is being uh, restated somewhat. Um, what do you think the U.S. needs to do, or you know, uh, or what is the motivation for multilateralism in the U.S. today? So um, the U.S. response uh, to RCEP and uh, CPTPP uh, has been uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic uh, Forum. Um, and that is a grouping of uh, some 13 uh, uh, countries uh, that uh, are talking about uh, deepening ties uh, on uh, the digital uh, side, uh, on infrastructure and uh, on supply chains, as well as things like climate change uh, and um, uh, uh, anti-corruption and, and some other areas. And I think that uh, this is a, 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 a very weak 
alternative uh, to CPTPP. Um, to it contains a number of the same elements, uh, but without the market access requirements uh, that uh, uh, many in the United States, especially in the trade unions, would uh, object to. Um, and so um, I uh, am um, happy uh, that the government, the U.S. government is um, integrated or, or is talking with our uh, uh friends, partners, allies, and other countries in Asia. But I'm disappointed uh, that uh, market access is not on the table uh, because that's really where we get the, the, the economic benefits. And so conversely, I have to applaud uh, the uh, success of RCEP, which I think is just getting started and really has a, a great future ahead of it. I hope so for the people of Asia, um, integrating um, uh, RCEP effectively created a free trade agreement between China and Japan, China and uh, and Korea, and and Japan and Korea, and that is a magnificent achievement uh, in my view. The United States uh, is not a member and will not become a member, and so um, uh, the IPEF uh, formula is great for as a opportunity to talk with our Asian counterparts. But for how long will they remain interested? What's in it for them? Uh, and how will they benefit uh, from IPEF uh, in a material way uh, is a question that I, I ponder. Um, What's, what is in substance the US today uh, on the global stage? So I think that, uh, uh, as I noted before, uh, uh, the uh, Biden administration is uh, a progressive uh, populist administration uh, that is pursuing an agenda for American workers uh, and with a strong uh, 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 bias towards uh, unionized labor and the manufacturing sector. And if you look at uh, the um, IPEF, if you look at uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, if you look at the CHIPS Act, uh, you see that through line coming through uh, very, very clearly. Uh, the lack of uh, skilled engineers and, and workers is a, is a huge problem. Uh, in addition uh, to that, I think that we need to be concerned about over global overcapacity in favored industries. Uh, the chip industry is notoriously famous for uh, volatility with high highs and low lows and all this capacity, uh, government-sponsored uh, capacity going into the chip industry doesn't mean that those monies will be effectively utilized at all. Um, and uh, we're also in a, uh, 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 on a monetary sense, uh, very much uh, fighting inflation through higher interest rates. Uh, and uh, so we're at an inflection point here uh, that's very uh, risky. Um, uh, and that uh, we need uh, wise leaders uh, to manage this, thinking not only of our own internal domestic uh, politics, but uh, how does it affect Sri Lanka? How does it affect uh, Pakistan? How does it affect uh, the developing world, which is uh, struggling on, on, with, in a high interest rate uh, environment with a lot of debt? and? Uh, uh, those are grave concerns, and I hope uh, that they're at the top of the agenda 
both in Beijing and in Washington, certainly they deserve to be. Is that there is a certain ruthless market economy uh, in 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 operation in the U.S. and uh, and because of that, um, you know, you're you're saying leave it to market forces to uh, to take us where we should go, and and then for the political process to uh, to to make these decisions from there. I mean, yeah, you know, we are uh, children of Adam Smith. Uh, we are uh, uh, children of uh, the market economy. We recognize how effective that that uh, has been, and we also recognize that in the wealth of nations, Adam Smith said, you know, the free trade is always the best uh, policy, except in the case of national defense. And the issue then becomes defining what is national defense uh, and. Different people might have different takes on that, but if we define it too broadly, we do so at the expense of global prosperity, and if we define it too narrowly, then we do so at the expense of national security, and drawing that that line is uh, critically uh, important, and I fear, um, I fear that it's drawn too broadly at the current time, both in China and in the United States. That's funny that you said that because Adam Smith was writing at a time when the Spanish and the English and the uh, you know and, and the Europeans were at, and the French were at war with each other. So I think that you can't have an economy if everyone was at each other's throats. So I think that that's you know that's probably reflected in what's happening today. Final question: um, You know, future looking, uh, few forward looking uh, issues. You know, uh, you mentioned just now trade in data. I think. Uh, and and, uh, and the, the U.S. Uh, response, which is the Indo-Pacific uh, Forum, um, has an element in there on, on, on data. And I think that bilaterally, uh, several countries, especially Singapore, has been going around, um, you know, making uh, trade in data, um, you know, bilateral arrangements with um, a variety of countries, including China, including Australia, and so on. What do you think are some forward-looking issues that we need to start, um, you know, factoring into our thinking when we think of trade? Data uh, as a percentage of global trade is growing very, very rapidly. Uh, and will continue to grow rapidly for the rest of our lifetimes. Uh, and uh, data is, uh, cross-border data flows are becoming more and more constricted uh, by governments who are unable to differentiate what is national security sensitive data and what data is not na national security sensitive. And I think the more conservative governments, and I would put China in, in this um, uh, category, uh, would want to restrict uh, virtually all uh, data, uh, cross-border data flows. Um, and uh, the United States uh, is uh, thinking about that too. Uh, I would expect uh, some form of uh, uh, greater regulatory pressures on TikTok as a, as a very kind of easy example <laughs> uh, in, in, in the near term. Um, but... Uh, uh, these cross-border data flow restrictions uh, become very expensive. Um, virtually all of our 280 members are having to localize their data management uh, in China and um, uh, uh, really take, uh, in some cases, take China off of their information grid. Uh, uh, you could bring data into China, but you can't take data out of China. Um, and I think that that's extremely inefficient uh, and expensive. And of course, it hurts uh, the Chinese companies the most. Uh, 
uh, as a Chinese bank, uh, for example, insurance company, a payments company, uh, is not able to bring their their foreign uh, uh, clients' data in and then take it out again uh, uh, due to due to regulations. So this is an area where we need a lot more work. Um, and um, there's a, a cybersecurity element of it. There's a privacy element of it. Uh, there's a national security element of it. There's an infrastructure uh, uh, hardware element of it. And um, it all um, is becoming more and more uh, difficult and expensive um, and important uh, for, for uh uh, companies on both sides of the Pacific. Thus far, we have been able to uh, avoid a conflict of laws uh, between um, uh, the United States and China on data. But I say thus far because I'm not sure uh, that uh, we'll be able to continue uh, uh, to avoid that conflict as data uh, uh, requirements become stricter and stricter in both uh, countries. Um, and so this is an area that uh, we're spending a lot of time and, and work and energy on. The uh, customers of Asian Banker are really going to have to uh, pay a lot of attention to in the future. This might not be straight up uh, and down financial industry, uh, but uh, you have to get it right. Uh, you have to be in, in full compliance. And how to do that is going to sculpt uh, your long-term uh, future for your organization. And it has to be, uh, and, and it's going to be expensive. And I uh, want to work with the Chinese government and the U.S. government to try to uh, uh, manage, uh, to, to appreciate their legitimate national security concerns, uh, but uh, allow companies uh, to be able to grow their businesses to um, you know, be able to import products, to have globalization, uh, to realize the benefits of globalization without having to uh, become a data island. Uh, I think no country wants to be a data island, uh, but at the same time, all countries need to protect their data national security. And the tension between those two becomes harder and harder every day. And we need to manage this uh, intelligently. You know, Craig, it's interesting that you said uh, the Asian banker because in the 28 years or so I've been following banking, data was actually one of the first, uh, you know, trading services uh, issue that the banking industry faced uh, outside of China, but for all of the rest of the world. Craig, this conversation can go on forever. Uh, and I've really benefited from, um, you know, your perspective and your insights uh, as someone representing, as you said, two, did you say 270 members uh, of the U.S.-China Business Council? What do you think you'd like to see happening, all things considered, knowing that we don't live in a perfect world? So I, I think that the United States and China need to talk to each other and that, uh COVID has really, uh, we, we paid an extremely high price for COVID in the lack of interpersonal um, um, meetings. It's no accident that uh, in uh, Bali uh, at the G20, uh, Xi Jinping and, and Joe Biden were able to sit down face to face and work out a plan uh, to begin uh, more robust consultations. Probably most importantly, military to military to increase our ability to avoid crisis and uh, uh, or manage crisis and avoid conflict. 
But I, I'd say that that's true across finance, uh, uh, environment, uh, public health, uh, uh, every any number of uh, of areas. So uh, I hope it's not too uh, too much to ask that we just talk to each other. That would be a great start. Well, on that note, I, I think we'll leave the conversation for now, and I hope that you you know we'll be able to talk again. Uh, when there's uh, you know much more robust development in the future. So thank you very much for your time with me. My great pleasure to be with you today. Thank you uh, for this opportunity. Thank you for having watched this conversation to its conclusion. I'm interested to know uh, what you think as uh, the viewer uh, or the listener or uh, the person reading uh, this conversation with Greg. Uh, and uh, give me a sense of uh, your ideas, uh, maybe even questions that I have that I may have missed. And the purpose of this conversation really was to take it off the grandstanding uh, agendas that we hear about a lot um, on both sides, um, you know, the pro-Chinese factions and the pro-American uh, perspectives and so on. Uh, and, and try and uh, drill it down uh, to the real issues uh, that we need to confront uh, if we were doing business um, anywhere in the world and so, give me your perspective uh, to add to our understanding of what it is that we actually see and how we need to react to them. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.